You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, I've been on my own colour run today. Hopefully you can see from the sunburn. But we're down at retreat. We had a great time with uh, all the crew there. And it's, it's great to see so many of all the gang that were down there at Stanwell Tops um, with us here tonight. And guys, I really appreciate you coming back to church and celebrating and bragging basically to everyone else who didn't turn up and have a great time, which is really cool. So we're gonna, we've are gonna we got bragging rights for a couple of minutes before we started. We've got a microphone around somewhere, Mike, because I thought it'd be a good chance to hear from someone how the, uh, how the retreat went. Big Rob, come on. Come on, mate. Yeah. Mate, um, you were down there, a first Northside retreat. Yep, yep. What was the highlight for you? I, I thought about it. I couldn't think of a specific time. I just thought the whole weekend was just uh, an amazing weekend. Yeah, fantastic. You had a chance to meet a few new people? Yeah, yeah. Got to talk to a few people that I'd only sort of really seen and said hi to at church, but not nothing more than that sort of thing, so... Yeah. And uh, look, I've always said that, you know, retreat one weekend there is better than 52 weeks here in, you know, 10-minute conversations. And we had a great time of sharing together. Is, is that, has that come true for you in that sense? Yeah, that's, I think it has, yeah. yeah. Oh, that tastes good. Well, mate, you've answered well. And uh, <laughs> remind me to slip you that check after the service. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Well, mate, it was so good to hang out with you down there. And you're always the life of the party, as you are in our services here. And, uh, and Rob's just one of a few that we got to know a bit better. And you're a real blessing to our community. So um, thanks for answering so well tonight, mate. And um, uh, everyone is signing up already on that basis. <laughs> oh, not a setup, not a setup. <laughs> oh, well. Hey, um... I'm wondering, what's your best ever excuse to get out of something, particularly school? Or has anyone had a good excuse that's really worked? They want to share? Oh, you know, stuff like I, I couldn't do my homework because uh, the dog ate it, or you know, we we had experienced some form of natural disaster. Or um, I, I was going through the top 100 excuses from various people on forums. This is the most original that I've found, and I liked it. Uh, they said, this is in order to get out of school. Theoretically, theoretically, the class met at the appointed time. However, I adhere to the philosophy of postmodernism. And therefore, since according to my truth, I was not in class, the class had no subjective reality to it. And so since the whole thing wasn't real, can you honestly be so bold, sir, as to say that I should have attended it? <laughs> Don't you think that's a little high and mighty of you? You can use that if you want. <laughs> but it, look, isn't it interesting that the degree to which uh, we determine our own sense of reality is the d- degree to which we can justify our own excuse. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't real. And so therefore, who's going to argue with that particular excuse? It's only when you come up against a, an, an object truth, a reality, a sense of reality that your excuses now really get measured up in terms of their effectiveness. And we've been learning over the past week as we began this series, what happens to people when they move into an objective reality of God? You see, I think a lot of people can make all sorts of different excuses about God. I'm sure you've got friends that make all sorts of different excuses about God. How can I believe in a God that I can't see? How can I believe in a God that I can't touch? Um, how can I believe a God that, that I don't realize? I believe in postmodernism. And theoretically, since God doesn't exist, 
then how could he be so high and mighty, right? So as we have been progressing right through this series, uh, through the Bible, we are going chronologically. You can see I'm, I'm really up at the thin end of the beginning of the Bible here tonight. Uh, we have been, if we've gone back in time, back to the future style, we started with Abraham last week and uh, this week we look at the person of Moses and what happens when he encountered the reality of God. The reality of God when really what we've been saying that as you encounter that reality, um, God is a spiritual tornado in that sense. He only brings you in in order to fling you back out. That when you have a real encounter with God, he sends you on a big mission. That, and, and I ask the question that as, as wallflowers, as, 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 as people here, if, if, you were, if you knew that the greatest dance in the universe was taking place, and, and the person at the center of that dance had come across the universal dance floor, holds out his hand and asks you to join in, would you? Would you get off the wall? And the degree to which we get off the wall, as we're going to see tonight, is the degree to which we understand the reality of God. And so we are going to look at Exodus chapter 3 and the story of Moses and the burning bush, verses 1 through to 14. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Sinai is another name for Horeb. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that, through the, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. <laughs> and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Well, then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Who's this Moses guy? Verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says he was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, a priest of Midian. We sort of think, is he a shepherd sort of guy? But literally what it's saying there, he was watching the sheep of, of Jethro. It, it, it's a verb used to mean he was continuing to watch. It would be better translated as uh, Moses was watching and watching and watching and watching. You see, his life was at a dead end. 
Uh, his life had, had gone nowhere. You, you see, he, this guy was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was an, a, a Hebrew boy, a little baby, put in the reeds, if we've seen any of the movies. He was raised in a royal house. He had a top-flight education. He had, he had all the royalty around him. He was part of the royal house. He had friends in high places. And, and then he discovers that his people, the Israelites, are being oppressed by the Egyptians. You read that all through Exodus chapter 1 and 2. He discovers that they're being oppressed, and so now he wants to sort of arc up and be a bit of an activist in that sense. And so uh, he gets really angry about it. He sees an Egyptian uh, beating up on an Israelite, and he goes in and he, he murders the Egyptian. Goes and tells off some other Israelites as he's going along the road, and they've heard what he was done. And so suddenly he realizes that people have discovered the terrible thing that he's done. And so now he finds himself a fugitive. He's on the run, and he flees out of Egypt off to this uh, uh, this place in the desert. And and as a result, he's fled for his life. And this whole incident was fifty four years before what we're reading about now. He's been sitting around. Um, in, the, in the desert tending, tending sheep for 54 years and his life's at a dead end. At, the, at this point, everything about him is gone, right? His, his social capital's gone. His financial capital's gone. Um, anything that he felt that he would have had, anything that we would have felt that we needed in order to be used by God has been stripped from him. He's, he's, he's gone. He's, he's a frail, forgotten old man. Seeking out a forgotten living in a forgotten part of the world. And here he is, this 80-year-old. Doesn't know anyone. No one cares about him. And it's at that point that this God that we talk about here says, now I need you. He says, and Moses is saying, are you, are you crazy, Lord? Um, look here, what, what are some of the principles that we can learn from, from his life uh, out in the middle of nowhere um, tonight? Look, here's, here's the first one that I was thinking. Um, God often meets you in the detours. God often meets you in the detours of life. You know, people are always asking the question, how, look, how does one have an encounter with God? How do I find God? Where is God? Where do I go to go and seek God? You know, do I go and do church? But it, it can often be a little bit easier than that. Verses 2 and 3 talks about the way that an angel of the Lord appeared in flames from fire within a bush. And so he sees the bush, he goes, he goes over it. He thinks, he thinks, verse 3, I'll go over and see this strange sight and why the bush doesn't burn up. So it must have been happening for a while. So this sense that he was looking over this ravine at this bush that's not burning up. And, and when it says that he, he went over, gone over, it literally means that he turned aside. He detoured from what he was doing. And so here's the funny thing, that the only reason that Moses meets God, ironically, is because his whole life is on a detour. He thought he was going to be the hotshot. You know, he was a young kid. He was in the palace. He was a part. Of, he was you know raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He, he had he had it all, and and now he's an eighty year old with nothing left. And ironically, that's where he begins to meet God. You see, I, I don't know about you guys, but don't most people encounter God when their life is on a massive detour like Moses? Uh, you know, pe people are saying, you know, they think, well, you know, I'm on a detour. I'm, I'm in the wrong career. I'm, I'm in the wrong relationship. I'm in the wrong country. I've got, to, I've got to get out. I've got to do something different with my life. And here's the irony. Isn't it funny that one of the most critical um, 
critical meeting points in all of history happens out in the middle of nowhere, in the, in the middle of a detour. And it's funny how so often God meets us in the detours of life. That was the case for me. We've been sharing stories um, all weekend on Saturday at the Young Adults Retreat. And it's been great to hear everyone's story about the ways that they've encountered God and the ways that God has brought people into this church. And you know, we've, we've, we've said it's strictly confidential, so I won't uh, tell any, anyone else's story. But in that way, you know, I shared with the guys who were in my group about the way that I was washing up a, a cup in a sink of a funny old flat in Canada with about two weeks left before I was about to head back home and twisting it there. I, I, I cracked the glass and, and cut my hand open almost down to the tendon. And so this terrible inconvenience is I've got to go and get up to the doctor's surgery and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I wanted to go out with the rest of the boys. I only had a couple of weeks left and sit at this surgery um, in the afternoon for any, anywhere from three to four hours. And I, I sarcastically said to the doctor when he finally came in, I said, oh, how's your day been? He said, how, how do you think my day's been? I've just been with a, with, with a little nine-year-old girl and, and I asked her, what's up, sweetie? And and she said to me, oh, well, I feel really sick in the tummy. He said, well, what can I do for you, sweetheart? And she said, oh, I, I, I want 350 milligrams of Finergan. And he's thinking, that's a really strange thing for a little girl to know specifically what she, what she wants. You know, how come, sweetie? Oh, my tummy's really bad. And he looks at me and he says, it was at that point that I realized that that little girl was dying of chronic stomach cancer. And here's Sam reveling in his sarcasm and totally hit by the fact that that little girl's obviously no, no longer with us. This was six years ago. And, and my life totally got thrown upside down. And instead of heading back and going to be with the boys, I, I went outside the minus 15 degree temperature and I waited at a bus stop and I went to a church up in Centre Street in Calgary and I heard a message from a preacher that just seemed to rock me. And for the, one of the few, if not the only times in my life, I felt that I heard the audible voice of God. When I asked him, Lord, what, what is going to happen with the church? Who, who's going to look after the church? And I heard, well, who else is going to do it? And I even turned to the bloke next to me and I said, did you say something? He said, I didn't, I didn't say nothing, man. And my life was irrevocably changed from that point onwards. God often meets you in the detours of failed careers, of failed relationships, of poor health. I was lucky enough that there was just a sore hand not a sore stomach on that afternoon. And so uh, might I encourage you tonight, if, if you feel like your life is on a detour tonight, if, you, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you may be even wondering, how did I even end up in this place tonight? Maybe it's because the God of the detours is seeking you. God often meets you in the detours. But here's the other thing. God doesn't, God doesn't call the qualified, but he does qualify the called. It's one of the great principles of the gospel that you're never going to be any use to God until you feel useless yourself. You're never going to be any use to God until you feel useless yourself. You know, look at Moses' excuses here. You know, we'll have a look at them in a sec. You see, here's the thing. Until you come to an end of yourself, until you realize that you feel useless in that sense, all throughout the scriptures, you can't even be a Christian. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And Matthew 23 is, you know, those that humble themselves will be exalted. You've got to come to an end to yourself. You can't, you can't step into the plans of God until you feel useless. And, and until that point where you feel you don't have the skills or you don't have the capacity um, or, or, or you, know, you, you just don't have the power to do what God is calling you to do. 
<laughs> until you also come to that point where you're realizing that you actually don't have the humility. You don't have the dependence on God. You don't even have the knowledge of his power to carry out the plans that he wants for you. You know, you think that you're better than the instructor in that sense. You know, that's, what, that's how I failed my P's test. I, uh, I was doing my P's test in Dad's V8 Dragon Wagon, as we called it. And, uh, and I was going real well. I was going through the roundabouts. I was, I was, I was, I was inside the lines. I was stopping well. I, I'd done my three-point turn. That had just near perfection. I, I'd done everything right. We were almost there. And, and, and I was at the last set of lights before we crossed across the traffic lights at, at, uh, at Forest Way there. And, 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 and as, as we're heading up to the intersection in the dragon wagon there, the, the, the green light goes amber. And... Uh, what do most 17-year-old boys do when the light goes amber? I just put my hand across the instructor's chest. I said, hold on, going through. <laughs> Needless to say, I failed the test. I failed. And um, I had to go back it again. And look, here's the thing. I, at, the, at, the, at the point, I thought I knew more than the instructor. I, I, I'm, I'm the one in the driver's seat in the control. And look, this whole principle, I'm not trying to be offensive when you know, we're talking about being useless, but uh, what, what I'm getting at is it's, it's, it's that point in which you feel that you know more than the, driver, the great driving instructor of the universe. When through your own agenda in life, you're saying, hold on, Lord, going through. <laughs> we're going through the intersection. <laughs> now, look, again, I said, look, that's the principle. You never be any use to God until you feel useless. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that feels depressing. <sighs> Here's the thing. Uselessness doesn't mean worthlessness. I, I, I mean, what if I took a $5,000 Taj Hua watch? I took it down to Circular Quay and I used it as a barrier to stop the Sydney ferry. Is it worthless? No, it's $5,000 worth of a watch as it sits there right as the ferry's coming in. Is it useless? Yes. Yes, it's totally useless in order to stop a 30, 50 ton ferry from crashing through into the buildings uh, that are down there at Circular Quay. You see, uselessness is not worthlessness. You see, uselessness is when something is not fulfilling or expected to achieve its intended or desired purpose. And see, when you, when, when you feel useless in that sense, it's because you are now getting a sense that your real purpose both your value and your real purpose is, is inextricably bound in the things of God and not the things of the world. And see, what was happening with Moses, he'd look at his excuses. Oh, you know, Exodus 4, I'm not important enough. I, I, don't, I don't have enough authority. I don't have any authority. I'm, I'm not persuasive enough. <laughs> I have inadequate skills. I stutter, Lord. You know, seriously, I, I st st stutter, he says. <laughs> You know, here's the thing. Moses does what I think a lot of us do in this place. We take the things of the world and we take these things of ourselves and we think that those things are our intended purpose. Moses is trying to take his framework and his view of what he thinks God's intended purposes are for his life and says, I don't match up. And God says, I've got something totally different. Friends, look, let's not make the mistake of taking things like our, our physical beauty or our skills or our success in life as the basis for our sense of worth. <laughs> to do that, friend, you just, you've just been a Taj Hill watch down at Circular Key. You get what I'm saying? 
to feel useless in that kingdom sense is to, is, is, is to know your worth as a, as a beautiful, precious watch. But to know that if you are going to measure yourself on how important you feel or the power that you have or the authority that you have in worldly terms, then you're totally out of place. Do you need to apply that tonight? Do you need to bed that in tonight? God doesn't call the qualified, but he does qualify the called. Here's the last point. God is the, d- the divine delegator. <laughs> this is awesome. I love God's heart. You know, if you ever wondered, you know, what's, what's the deal with suffering in the world? What does God say about suffering in the world? Um, or you can podcast one of my previous messages. Um, but we also get a hint here in what God's saying. Look at this, verse 7. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Great little insight as a side note here. We worship a God that cares, that cares about the suffering in the world. But he's the divine delegator. This is what I love. I've seen this. I'm coming down. I've seen the misery. I'm empathizing. I'm going to send them out into a land of flying with milk and honey. And so now, Moses, I'm sending you. That, that's, that's what we call the divine hospital pass. Moses has just just copped a whole lot. I'm I'm sending you to go and do it for me, Moses. God's a divine delegator. And here's here's the great exciting thing for us. It means that you have a responsibility to carry out the work of God in your world. I mean, I said last week, if you want to be something bigger and greater, if you want to get off the wall and stop being a wallflower, you've got to have a big mission. But how could it be that that we have a big mission and actually never get our hands dirty and get involved. When you come up against this reality, you see that God takes this, this whole missional thing from theoretical to practical. What I love is he's, he's not a God of false empowerment. God's not here to amuse us. He's not here to make us feel special. Right? The great mystery of the mission of God, the missio day that we've been talking about, is that we, in fact, are the means by which he's going to achieve it. What a great sign of power and, and, and might in what, you, in what he does. Now, look, here's, where, where's the tension here with Moses? What's Moses' tension? Here's, here's what I think it could be for him. And maybe I'm just projecting onto Moses tonight, but maybe this is the tension for us. He starts coming up with um, all sorts of excuses. He says, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who, who, who am I to do? Who, he says, who should I tell them that sent me? You know, what, what should I say? Lord? And, and he goes on in chapter 4, all the excuses. Who am I? Here's the tension. Is it that Moses thinks the task is too big or the task is too inconvenient? Do we think that God's task when he calls us is too big or is it actually because it's too big? See, what's really going on here? Is it really self-esteem issues for him? Or is that his newfound mission is inconvenient? You know, see, when Moses is saying, well, who am I? What is, what is, what's he doing? He's, he's skirting around the bush. Uh, you know, he's beating around the bush, the burning bush, so to speak. <laughs> right? And, and that should be the clue to us. It's a burning bush. He's speaking to a bush, a burning bush. God couldn't be any more real in this sense in his life. And, 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 and Moses is, is going, look, are you sure about that? You don't want to send someone else? You know, I know Aaron speaks really well. My brother, you could get him to do it. Uh, are you sure you can't send someone else? Are you sure you want me to do uh, You see all the excuses coming out. You know, and you know what he's saying here? He's saying, maybe this is what we say. God, this, is, this whole delegation thing, this whole sending, sending me thing, this is not really working for me. I mean, I like the burning bush bit, and this is, this is pretty dazzling. 
And it's great to get a sense that you're real in my life and, 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 and wow, I feel fantastic. But, but, but to go and to stand in front of Pharaoh in that sense, you know, I, I, I didn't expect you to send me anywhere. You know, and I love God's response. Verse 14, God says to Moses, he says, who, who should I say sent me? And he says, oh, tell them, I, I am who I am. That's what you're going to say to him. I am has sent me to you. You know, you know what God's saying? God's saying, I am not the God that you want for your life. I am the God that is the I am. We could get all sorts sort of philosophical here and big and deep. You know, get into a theological nosebleed about what is happening. But, you know, it's, it's not a meaning issue here. Look, here's what the Hebrew verb uh, the I am, what it's really saying. It's really saying, uh, it's the verb that means to be, to exist. What, he, what he's saying is, in other way, another way of saying it is, I am that I am. In the simplest terms, he's saying, tell them that I exist. Send you. Tell them that the being exist uh, the being sent you god is saying i have no beginning or end i i i, I always am <laughs> you know, never never will there be a day when when people said that i was he's saying never was there a time where people will say i will be He's saying, I, I've always been, I, I always am, I, I've had no beginning or end. Absolutely no power or being has caused me and because I am the source of all being and all power. Now think about this for a second. If, God's, if God is the cause of everything, this bush that doesn't burn up, this self-initiating, self-directing power, the only thing that has life in and of himself, then there can't be any legitimate excuse against that which he decrees for us, to the, against that which he calls us to. He, he created you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought. He knows every worry. He knows every anxiety. He knows every flaw. He knows every blemish. He knows everything that you've done wrong. He knows everything that you've done right. He knows everything you will do wrong. He knows everything you will do right. He, he's the God who knows absolutely everything about you. And here's the funny thing. Do you think that the all-knowing God who has the solar system wrapped around his pinky is surprised by your perceived inadequacies. I mean, when Moses said, I stutter, do you think God said, oh, shucks, I had no idea. I've just called you to go to Pharaoh, and you can't even speak. Oh. See, if, God's, if God was a CEO, you see, CEOs, you know, they hire HR managers. And why do CEOs hire HR managers? It's because they or their company lack a particular skill or asset. That's why we go to job interviews. We want to, we want to go and audition with our skill and asset that will fill the gap in that company. Yeah, and the company of God, um, God's everything from the financial controller to the mailman, to the HR manager, to the marketing manager. In other words, in an organization that is the kingdom of God and his reign and all that he does in this earth, he, he could do every single role himself. And so therefore, he's not calling Moses in because he needs him. He's not surprised by Moses' lack of ability. He already knew that, and he said, that's what I want to work through. 
And that's why, you know, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know, there's no better way for God to get the glory for you to do things that are so small and insignificant at the time that lead to such immense and miraculous glory in the world that you don't even have to worry about getting in the way because people look at how incredible it was and they say that had to be God. So all, all I'm saying to you tonight, friend, if, if, if you think that it's a perceived lack of ability that is stopping you from getting involved in that big mission from God, it doesn't surprise him. If God qualifies those that he calls, then you need not get it all together before participating in his big mission. Therefore, what you have in your hand right now tonight on the 10th of February is exactly what he needs from you to do his work this week. He's the divine delegator. So, are you making excuses? Are you making excuses? Look, if he could lead Israel out of years of military oppression through slavery, uh, through, through a stuttering 80-year-old fugitive at the end of his life, what could he do with you this week? Let's pray.